This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thank you for tuning in. Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16 say this, I have written very boldly to you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Growth is never by mere chance, regardless of what kind of growth you're talking about. And spiritual growth is the same way. It's the result of forces working together, and we can't accomplish all that we need to do without working together. And Paul has at length addressed Jewish-Gentile relations in this in this letter, and he's concluding with a final exhortation here to unity and steadfastness in, in the gospel. And so he's reminding us again that in this context that Jesus came to serve all people, not just the Hebrews of whom Paul was a member. If you back up to verse 3 of chapter 15, in the same context, Paul says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he says that right on the heels of, we need to live in verses 1 and 2 in a way that we please other people. Not that that's our main goal, but in the context he's been talking about working together in a peaceful way and pursuing the things that make for peace, as he says in, in Romans chapter 14. Not getting up on, hung up on scruples and opinions that don't really matter to God. And of course, the Bible has to determine what's a matter of opinion and what's a matter of faith. But that's a study for another time. But ultimately, Paul is, is saying that you need to have other people's interests at heart. Don't just live to please please yourself. Each of us is to please, verse 2, his neighbor for his good and to his edification. And then he sets apart Christ as the example in verse 3 that we read. And so it was always God's plan that all people of the world, Jew and non-Jew alike, be brought into fellowship with him through the cross. He wants us to be a family. We are a kingdom, a church, a household. The scripture uses all of these these terms interchangeably, I think, uh, to emphasize different aspects of God's people. But in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, in verse 14, Paul says, He himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And so what was distinctive about the ancient Hebrews was that law that God gave to them. Uh, there was a, a law for the Gentiles as well that he held accountable. And that hasn't been preserved for us, to, to my knowledge, but the one that he gave to Moses has been, and that with good reason. But Paul is saying that that law was the enmity. That was, they were God's distinctive people, but it wasn't his plan for that to for that that law to divide them from from everybody else for all time. No, he wanted a new covenant and had in place a plan to establish that new covenant through his son wherein all people could be reconciled to God on the same terms and conditions and be one man as Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 2, be one body in in Christ. Um 
In verses 8 and 9 of Romans chapter 15, Paul says, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers for the Gentiles to glorify God for his his mercy. And so Paul is making the same point again, that again, Christ saved, uh, Christ came to serve rather all people. And this was his intention as a servant to the circumcision, meaning the, the Hebrews, to confirm those promises that God made through the prophets long ago to bring all people into a relationship with him, a covenant relationship with him for his his glory. Just look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and those prophecies in Daniel and the latter book, which speak of the mountain of the Lord and the household of the God being established on the mountains in all nations, all nations flowing into it, and all people saying, let us go up to the house of God and worship him and learn of him and walk in his paths and, and his truths. So to, to affirm this even further, Paul is citing five scriptures in this context of Romans chapter 15. He cites Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 11. And when we consider the various backgrounds from which folks come, and specifically the audience that he's writing to in in Romans, they were different religiously, they were different culturally, they were worlds apart, and yet the gospel had and, and still has the power to bring all together and share a faith of equal privilege. To use Peter words from Second Peter 1 and verse 1. A, a, a like precious faith is the phrasing that the old King James uses. But the idea is it's the same faith that can be had by all people. That's the power of truth. And Jesus was a servant on behalf of the truth. As Paul says in verse 8 of Romans 15. He offended all kinds of people, all stripes of people, religious people, non-religious people, all kinds of people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. But at the same time, he brought people together from all walks of life and backgrounds. Tax collectors, fishermen, religious zealots, people who are very militant against in their hostility to Rome, Pharisees even. Some of them followed him, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and of course eventually Paul. And so the point is, you see, it's, it's our attitude toward the truth that is the determining factor that will either unite us or divide us depending on our attitude, right? Because there were people in all those categories also that chose to walk away from him. We'll just look at John chapter six. Many of his disciples were not walking with him anymore because of the things that he said, the things that he taught. They said, this is a difficult statement. Who can hear it? And then John says, as a result, many people weren't walking with him anymore. And so you see, it, it is it is the truth that is our foundation for unity, but it's also the very thing that divides us. And the determining factor for where we stand is is us, is our attitude, is our choice. Is the truth important to us or not? And so we find the admonition not to follow those who refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. That's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. He says those who perish are going to perish spiritually because they refused to love the truth and be saved. You see how that desire precedes acceptance of the truth and, and receiving the benefits of the truth as revealed by Jesus Christ, who is truth, John 14.6, and the way and the life. 
So whatever my past and whatever my background and whatever my experiences and yours, whatever your past background experiences, if we love the truth, if we are loyal to it because of whom it originates with, and we want to serve him and his truth and his will, God's will, and we're satisfied with nothing less than truth, we will be united. We will find unity. And there's examples that abound throughout the book of Acts as Paul was going and, and, and others were going and preaching the truth. And you find, you know, you see those people of different backgrounds and different walks of life. Um, and, and they're, and they're hearing this news. So, and, you know, Acts 16, uh, Lydia and, and Philippi, and then you have uh, Apollos later in Acts chapter 18, you have the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, you have uh, the 12 disciples in Ephesus in chapter 19 who only knew of the baptism of John. So all these people were on different pages spiritually, re- religiously, and yet they come, and Paul comes and brings this new teaching, and he's confirming, the, and God is confirming the message by the miracles that Paul performed, and they're all looking to the source of truth and investigating to see if, as the as in Acts chapter 17, it says the Bereans, they were eagerly searching the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul were saying was were actually true, right? because Paul substantiated his, his preaching with, with scripture in the Old Testament, prophecies that pointed to, to Christ. And they were looking to truth, and because they had that love for truth and that desire to know the truth um, that that is from from God, they were united ultimately. Right, so you know we we see the church established in Berea. We see, uh, you know, Lydia being the first convert in, in Philippi. We see Apollos now being accepted, and, and those men in Ephesus in Acts chapter nineteen all coming on to be on the same page, so to speak, and united on what the truth is. So in Apollos's case, and you know the men in in Ephesus, the 12 disciples in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, it was the issue was they only knew the baptism of John. So Paul preaches to them what the, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and they accept that and they understand, oh, this is the truth. This is the truth now. And they're all united, and they all are preaching the same thing you know, and believing the same thing and obeying the same thing. right? And, and that all began with their love and their diligence and they're striving for the truth, right? Being satisfied with nothing less than the truth. And you see people brought together being united in this way. And so Paul's prayer is that in verse 13, that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As he's getting close to the end of the letter here, he also wants to remind us that our God is a God of hope and not of despair or despondency. And he's able to fill us with joy and peace. Uh, but notice the qualifier there, that he's able to do that in believing. And so those are words that we need to mark well, because they're conditional. That's the condition for this joy and peace that Paul is speaking of here. We we obtain those spiritual blessings in and through believing, again, the truth. And so it's not it's not a passive kind of agreement to a set of principles and just kind of, you know, generally a nodding in that direction and say, okay, uh, but he's talking about, a, you know, biblical faith is a deep abiding, abiding trust and the promises of God and the commands of God that compels one to obey. And, and so they obey. And in fact, many times in scripture, belief and obedience 
and unbelief and disobedience are used interchangeably. Right? So, so biblical faith is very deep and it's also very practical in nature. And so this, this trust and obedience leads to the things that Paul, the peace and joy that Paul is speaking of here to the end that we can then abound in hope, he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, I don't believe, means a miraculous kind of power, but the power which is afforded to all people and, and all believers through the inspired word of the Holy Spirit that that manifests his power to us today. And so we maintain our hope and we quash all doubts by immersing ourselves in the word of God. Again, we go back to loyalty to his his truth. You know, if I'm going to keep myself from being deluded by the world and letting the enemy sow seeds of doubt in my heart, I have to constantly combat that by pouring over the word of God and, and filling myself up with the word of God and the promises contained therein. You know, you look at the pattern over history, over the history of God's people. He was, he instituted many different memorials and feast days for this very purpose to bring to his people's remembrance, call help them remember the various things that he had done in their history to deliver them and, and by implication, what that meant for their relationship to him, that that called them also to, to be thankful and to obey and to walk in that spirit of gratitude. And the same is true in the new covenant. We don't have, you know, various feast days and Passovers and things like this. We have one day that he has instituted a memorial on the first day of the week. And, and that is also the call to our remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Right. And, and so we, we need, the point is, I say all of that to say this, we, we need those reminders and God knows that we need those reminders. And Peter knew we needed that reminder. In Second Peter 2, he says, so long as I'm here, it's right for me to stir you up by way of reminder. Right? We, we're always going to need to be nourished by the words of the faith. What happens if you don't have nourishment physically? Well, you waste away physically. You deteriorate. In, in all sorts of ways, physiological, mentally, bodily, of course. And so that's why it's a powerful metaphor. And why scripture, I believe, uses that metaphor of the words of the faith being food and, and nourishment and the milk of the word and the meat of the word and so on and so forth. Uh, because we need that spiritual nourishment that only the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God, can give us. And in so doing, we find another blessing. Verse 14, Romans chapter 15, he says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able, also able to admonish one another. So these brethren that Paul are, is writing to had arrived at a point wherein their knowledge level was sufficient to instruct one another and to admonish one another. Notice he says, You're filled with all knowledge. And also, they had the ability to wield it, uh, wield that knowledge effectively. So let's stop right here for a moment and ask the question, does that mean then, when Paul says you're filled with all knowledge, does that mean that they had nothing left to learn? No, of course not. I don't believe that's what it means at all. No Christian ever arrives in that sense because we have the command at the same time in Second Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a command for all Christians in all times and all levels of understanding. Right? But, the, but the point is, I believe Paul is saying that these brethren were competent teachers. And we must strive to be as well. That was one of the issues facing the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. If you go and you read that section of Scripture, you're going to find the words where the author is saying, by this time you ought to be teachers. And he's writing to a group of Christians. Right? He's not writing to elders. He's not writing to preachers. Um, he's not writing to deacons. He's, he's writing to all Christians. And he's saying you should have arrived at this point to be competent teachers, but he says you have come to need milk again and not solid food. So there's that metaphor again, of uh, the metaphor of food being representing scripture. So we should work and we should study to become competent in knowledge that we may be able to teach others. But at the same time, we must ever remain teachable ourselves. And that's a critical point that we have to remember. And Paul is confident these brethren in Rome fit the bill of teachable students. He says in verse 15, the very next verse, he says, I've written to you boldly. I've written to you boldly on some points to remind you. And again, I just want to emphasize the point we will ever be in need of reminding in the things of God. And what does that say about you and me? You know, I gave the example of memorials earlier. God knows that we need those kinds of memorials. And so he's given us one of the new covenant. And as you, you know, as we consider that question, what does it say about you and me that we need reminding? Well, Peter, Peter again answers, I'm, I'm going to be ready to remind you of these things, even though he says in verse uh, 12 of Second Peter 1, I said chapter 2 a minute ago, but it's actually Second Peter 1 and verse 12. He says, I'm going to remind you of these things, even though, listen, you already know them and have been established in the truth that's present with you. Think about that. You know these things, he says. You've retained them. You are even established in the truth, he says, but I'm going to remind you anyway. And so this brings us closer to the answer. Why do we need reminding? I may know truth, yes. I may be established in truth, yes. But I will always need reminding. Why? Stay with Peter. He says, I consider it right so long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up. By way of reminder, verse 13. I need to be stirred up. Literally, that, that phrase means aroused from sleep by the word of God. You see how vital it is to our spiritual well-being, to our spiritual activity and motivation. I'm always going to need that, and you're always going to need that. And it's one of the reasons Paul has, uh, excuse me, God has ordained his assemblies, his the, the first day of, of the week where we observe his memorial and we come together with his people, Hebrews 10.25, to provoke one another to love and good deeds. This is why I need reminding, and this is why you need reminding. We are all, we are a fallen race. We are weak and sinful creatures who have to continually strive to lay aside sin that so easily entangles us. And notice the Hebrew writer says, Sin easily, easily entangles us in Hebrews 12.1. So you and I have to square with that fact. 
that without constant nourishment from the word of God, we're going to wither away and die and be adrift in sin and selfishness. And so we need to be reminded, we need to be stirred up, and we have to take the initiative to engage in the very thing that's going to to do that for us. Here's sound biblical teaching and preaching. Be part of the uh, that local fellowship that God has ordained wherein his people come together in wherever they are in the world and they and they stir one another one another up. They provoke one another to love and good deeds. Paul desired his brethren to be sanctified in the Holy Spirit. And that's something we should desire as well. Notice how he says this will be accomplished. He says, I've written to you so that my, and this is the second part of that phrase we just considered a second ago, where he says, I've written to you briefly or boldly. He says, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so their sanctification would be accomplished through the word of the Holy Spirit. And God's people have always been sanctified or set apart for him in this way. So, that to say, you know, when when Paul says sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we have to understand him in, in light of the rest of the Scripture and how the Holy Spirit accomplishes that. So stay with me for just a moment. Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Right? So the, 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 the word of truth inspired by the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit's means, is God's means, of sanctifying or setting apart his people. The word of truth inspired by the Holy Spirit sanctifies, and it alone sanctifies. And so Paul is, he doesn't say that explicitly, but he just says sanctified by the Holy Spirit with the assumption that we understand the other passages like John 17, 17, which explain to us God's means or agency of doing that is through his word. And I will only be sanctified by it in so in so far as I'm willing to submit to it, in so far as I'm willing to humble myself before it. And so Paul closes with his intention, finally, to come to the brethren in Rome, that he may enjoy their company and find refreshing rest, he says in verses 24 and 32. And I think that that's a very uh, touching note to, to end upon because of how Paul is looking forward to being with his brethren in Rome, many of whom he's never seen face to face. He hasn't, he hasn't been there at this point uh, writing the letter. He says, I want to enjoy your company and find refreshing rest. I wish that all brethren would take advantage of that blessing that Paul anticipated. You think about who who's writing those words also now. You think about the this man and and what he what he suffered for the cause of Christ. He knew what it was to be shipwrecked. He knew what it was to be left stranded in the ocean. He knew what it was to be beaten and stoned and spit upon and left for dead and scourged. And yet he is going to find enjoyment and refreshment in the people of God and spending time with the people of God. And he makes it clear that his only reason for boasting was in that what Christ had accomplished through him. That's another point he makes in this context. As people all over the world were repenting and turning to God through his preaching of the gospel in verse 18, he's explaining that his pursuit of, of this uncovered ground 
is what delayed him in coming to be with his brethren in Rome thus far. Right? So it's not that he's just dilly-dallying. He wants them to understand, I, I do want to come and be with you, find that refreshment. And, you know, he'll he'll mention this in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, I, I want to be with you to impart some spiritual gift. And he says, so that I may be encouraged by your faith and you by mine. Right? So he's, from the beginning, he's 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 mentioned that he has this in mind, this mutual edification, this mutual benefit he expects. And he says, I've only been delayed just because I've been so busy. But wherever he went, he fully preached the gospel of Christ. Verse 19, that's an important point to take away as as well. Fully preached the gospel of Christ. And may we never shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. May we give glory and credit to whom it is due, our Savior who works through us. We have a common goal as God's people to do all things for his glory. And Paul is revealing here that we do so, the way that we do that, and the only way we can do that is in loving and serving the truth that he revealed. He is distinct from his truth, his his word is his truth, but it originated with him, and you can't love him without loving his truth, and vice versa. And it is only in hearing, adhering to it that we come to a deeper understanding of him, that we that we can be united as his people, Again, regardless of where we have been in our past, our families, our, 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 our socioeconomic backgrounds, we can and should teach a single unified gospel to the world. That's what Jesus expected. Just read John chapter 17, right around verse 21. And this we do as we instruct and admonish one another, so that we might be truly sanctified by the Holy Spirit. A people for his own possession, Paul says. And we don't have to boast in our own work, and that's not what Paul was doing here. But we can boast in in what Christ accomplishes through us. And we should take delight in one another, as Paul did with his brethren. And we should stir up one another, as Paul wanted to do, as Peter knew was important as God knows is important, and we should be refreshed by one another and and cherish the opportunity to be together and embrace one another. Growing spiritually and growing in our love for God and growing in our love for one another is never by mere chance. Growth is the result of forces working together. We cannot accomplish all that we need to do without working together. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.